It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the Money Guy Show. I'm your host, Brian Preston, and um, we've got a lot to cover today. If you want to just go check out our show notes, you can go out to our website. That's money-guy.com. And um, from going out there and looking at those show notes, you have the opportunity to sign up for our free email newsletter that comes out every time we do a new show every week. Gives you all the show notes as well as the links to all the different articles that I talk about in each show that we do. And then you can also sign up for our print newsletter called The Wealth Report comes out quarterly, and it keeps you up to date with what's going on out there with your personal finances and helps you make the right decisions. We've got a lot to cover today. I kind of want to give you a, an overview of what we will be talking about today because I think we got some great articles. I've got um, eight experts recall their best personal financial advice. I think this stuff is important. Always one of the things I love about my job as a wealth manager is that I get to go meet successful people, find out what made them successful, and um, it, it's just kind of always an educational experience. If you can hang around people who have made had success in their life, figure out what makes them tick, and reproduce it. I mean, there's a reason all these books are out there trying to tell you how to become successful, what the, the great minds have done in the past so that you can help learn off of that. And I think that this type of article from these eight experts is, is very beneficial to try to get some information on what you can use in your own personal finances in your personal life um, to make the right decisions. Also, I've got an article, because I know you guys have heard me talk, that this show goes beyond common sense, because I'm not the traditional um, financial talk radio host that beats up on credit cards, because I think that they can be used as a tool. They're a very dangerous tool, but they can be used as a tool um, for your financial gain. And there was actually an article on MSN Money that, that gets right into this uh, this issue that I'm talking about. And, and it asks the question, are credit cards evil or just dangerous? So I think this is the type of um, article. I love articles that go into the detail of uh, how many of us are actually using credit cards as well as the things you've got to be concerned about and then some actual factual statistics that have been released by the Census Bureau. So well, we can get into that um, a little bit later. And then we've also got an article on where do you stand in the wealth spectrum. You always, I know it's always an intriguing thing, um, to know where you fall among all the other population, upon, you know, with income as well as net worth. And this is, I've, I've heard the income statistics before, but I have not heard the net worth information that I'm going to provide probably in the second segment, but I think it's very interesting, and I've got that to go over as well. And then we've got an article on, flipping through this, um, dealing with disaster and your insurance company. Um, this is, you know, we have a lot of listeners out there in California, and as I talked about in last week's show, you know, they had all those wildfires that um, really caused a lot of havoc, and I think this is the time that we ought to talk about how you make a good insurance claim, and plus, you know, as we enter the fall, this is, you know, hurricane season is kind of in the middle of where we are, you know, we're actually coming to the end of hurricane season, but you just never know when some of these storms and bad weather might cause some harm to your house, and you need to know, um, what you need to do to make your claim with your insurance company. And then the last topic, assuming I can get to it today, because as you can see, we got a lot to cover here, is 10 little expenses that add up fast. So these are all the things we're going to try to get to today um, if we have time, because, you know, we are on here a limited period. 
give me one hour a week, I am going to change your life. So the first thing, eight experts recall their best personal financial advice. Um, and it says, learn what these successful people said they consider the best personal financial advice they ever received. And the first person they, they talked to was um, Gary Belsky, who's co-author of Why Smart People Make Big Money Mistakes and How to Correct Them, Lessons from the New Science of Behavioral Economics. And this is what his quote is. He says, be afraid when people are greedy and greedy when people are afraid. It's basically buy low and sell high. In general, I've been doing better than market mark, market averages when I've been handling my investments. I've basically down, um, done that by being conservative when the market is frothing and aggressive um, when the market's down. And first, got to go ahead and apologize to you guys. I am on cold medication. I've kind of been under the weather. Changing seasons always hit me in the fall as well as in the um, spring, and I'm under that that period right now. I have one of these head colds, and when I'm on this medication, I feel like I'm in a box, and um, my reading struggles a little bit on some of the stuff because you just don't feel like I'm 100% here. But um, I think I screwed up that last sentence. I'm going to read that again. It says, basically, uh, I've done uh, been successful by being conservative when the market is frothing and then aggressive when the market is down. In other words, what have I been telling you guys for months since you've been listening to this show is that you need to be ready ready to head into the burning building when everybody else is running out. And then you also need to be trying to find your exit when everybody's getting excited um, to go into certain sectors and other things that probably are overvalued and the, and the party's already been there, done that. You don't want to be investing in that thing. Because remember, the simplest philosophy with this is the core of what he was saying is, is that you do want to buy low and then sell high. The next quote is from Wayne Dyer. And he's a Ph.D. and author of The Erroneous Zones. And it's not what you've got. Lessons for kids on money and abundance. And um, he says the lesson... Uh, for me, was pay yourself first. That was the the biggest thing he was ever taught. He said while he was in the Navy stationed in Guam, Dyer saved 90% of his pay over the last 18 months. And um, so he came home with enough money to pay tuition for four years of school and a car, even though I pay myself first. If you want to be physically independent by the time, financially independent by the time you're 30 years old, pay yourself first. So he had obviously had a goal. He's trying to reach it. He did whatever it took, you know, of... Um, using you know fiscal restraint and and save that money as fast as he could he says when you get your paycheck take a percentage between 10 and 30 percent and put that away you'll be rich enough to be financially independent within a short gotta turn the page period of time so that's um you know that's that's some pretty common sense we've talked about all that on previous shows we get into um Neil Godfrey, who's the author of Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, A Parent's Guide to Raising Financially Responsible Children and Chair of the Children's Financial Network. His quote is, step away from the television and magazines. All they serve to do is show you how stupid you are because you've missed whatever they're talking about. It's old news. It's already happened. And we've talked about that. I always say, don't go chasing the hot dot. You know, it's, it always cracks me up. I love getting those financial publications like Kiplinger's Smart Money and things like that. But it always cracks me up when they come out with their issues of the best performing funds of 2007 or 2006. Because, you know, they always are a, a, a retroactive looking backwards 
view of the best performing funds from the previous year. And and that's always the worst thing you can do. You don't care about how things did last year. You're more concerned about the long-term performance of funds because if you're just looking at the short-term and how they did last year, you're chasing the hot dot. And more than likely, the party's over. You know, you're going to go in there and invest in that money, uh, in that fund, it's not going to do well because it had its great year last year. You're going to get frustrated after about two or three years, if you even can wait that long. You're going to sell it, and that's about the time probably a good fund manager is going to find another inefficiency out there in the marketplace that he's going to make money off of. So stay away from, you know, and be careful. I know that this is financial information, too. I fall under that um uh, the the news financial news spectrum, but I, I think you know I'm trying to be more objective, give you the advice, but still take everything with a grain of salt, and, and let that common sense meter that's within all of us, you know, play into the decisions the decisions that uh, I cannot speak today, the decisions that you are making with your financial life. Um, George Kinder, who's a certified financial planner and author of the Seven Stages of Money Maturity. Understanding the spirit and value of money in your life and founder of the Kinder Institute had the following to say, it's about the meaning, not the money. If my investing is not really deeply tied to what I think is most important in my life, he says, then the asset allocation, the estate plan, the retirement plan might as well be thrown out the window. So um, he's basically getting into that money is... um, the way I read this, money is more of a tool. Don't let money be the thing that defines you. Money is just a tool so that you can, you know, buy resources, buy things, um, and, and function in life. I think it's all important for all of us to step away every now and then and recognize that when you're building this financial independence, it's to build a better life. It's not to, to gain the power that comes from money because I do think that's where the, the evil of money can come in is when it possesses you like that. You need to always keep in mind that money is a tool and nothing more than that. Um, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, and also what the rich teach their kids about money that the poor and the middle class do not, he states, my rich dad gave me lots of advice. One of the better ones, there's good debt and bad debt. Bad debt is debt you have to pay for and makes you poor. If I use credit cards to buy a new pair of shoes, it makes me poor. Good debt makes me rich and someone else pays for it. Um, So that's pretty common sense. I think that's um, good. You know, what we've talked about in previous episodes uh, of the Money Guy Show, we've talked about how bad debt is exactly what he's talking about. If you're running credit card balances month after month, and you're having to carry all those finance charges, they're not deductible. There, there's no benefit to really having that type of stuff. It's the same thing with high car loans, too. You know, car loans, cars are depreciating assets. And if you're carrying a large balance on a car um, and you're not paying it down quickly, you're carrying the finance charge, plus you're also probably going to end up being upside down and owing more on the car than it's actually worth to you financially. So you want to be very careful to make sure you're not upside down and doing bad debt. Good debt is like mortgages. It's assets where you're leveraging for an appreciating asset, meaning you're borrowing at today's value of that asset, um, paying it down over time, but also that asset's appreciating. So in 10 years from now, you've paid down the loan quite significantly, plus that asset is appreciated, and it was leveraged, meaning borrowed money, so you actually have accelerated your rate of return. Uh, You can think about that in the fact that if you bought a $100,000 house, you put 20% down, that's $20,000. That house goes up and, you know, in 10 years, say it's worth $150,000. You've invested, you know, and you've paid the loan down to 80000 at that point. You've invested twenty grand, but if you sold it 
as of that day, you would have seventy grand of, of equity because you paid the loan down to eighty thousand plus it's appreciated up to one fifty. That seven that's twenty thousand dollars invested has turned into seventy. That's the power of using good debt. You've leveraged that debt to make a good decision. So I think that's um that, that's not a bad way. But I will tell you, I'm a big fan of that. If you are, are if you can pay down debt as as soon as you can, I think debt is one of those bears that sits on your back. If you're not careful, um, you know it can it, it can weigh upon you. And I just like paying down debt if you're doing everything else you need to be doing. Um, one of the, I got two more quotes. Peter Navarro, PhD, author of The Coming China Wars: Where They Will Be Fought and How They Can Be Won, an associate professor of economics and public policy at the University of California says, take every piece of advice you get from an investment advisor with a barrel of salt. Most are trying to sell you things that you probably don't need or want. Think for yourself. And I think that's that common sense meter that I talk about. You've got to pay attention. Don't let people, I think a lot of people in my industry will try to spin your head, meaning make things much more complicated than they have to be because they're trying to justify themselves. If it doesn't sound reasonable, don't do it. And don't invest in things you don't understand. And that's why we're trying to educate you here through this show. The last quote I have in advice is from Dave Ramsey. And we're all familiar with Dave. You know, he has a show. He's also out there on iTunes. He's one of the top podcasts out there. He's out of Nashville. And he says he's the author of The Total Money Makeover, A Proven Plan for Financial Fitness, and host of the nationally syndicated radio show focusing on personal finance. And he's, his quote is this. It says, A friend of mine who is a billionaire told me that he reads a book to his grandkids, and I should read that book. The book is The Tortoise and the Hare. Every time he reads the book, the tortoise wins. Slow and steady wins the race, and consistency matters. Get rich quick never wins. If you try to impress other people, you'll lose the wealth race as well. Um, Ramsey says, it sure did give me a nice metaphor. It's good to remind someone like me to keep me in check. It has implications of debt for mutual funds, for budgets, and an overlay for everything. And I think that's a great advice to kind of go out before the next segment um, because it does let you think about, you know, how you've got to think about your finances. And I I think we've been an advocate here of, you know, being an entrepreneur, starting a business. But if you're not going to go that route, if you just like being – you know, working at an institution, do be, you know, be responsible and save monthly. I don't care who you are. You need to be saving 15 to 20% of your wages for retirement. And, and that's going cool. you're going to wake up one day and you're going to be successful and truly financially independent and get all that comes with that, the peace of mind and, and the ability to know that you can pick up your marbles and go home at any time. When we come back from the break, we are going to be talking about are credit cards evil or just dangerous, and then I'm also going to tell you where you stand in the wealth spectrum. So join me back in a few seconds. I am the host for The Money Guy Show, Brian Preston. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Brian, The Money Guy Preston here. If you enjoy the information that I share on The Money Guy Show, then you'll love my print newsletter, The Wealth Report. The Wealth Report is the quarterly newsletter that I send my wealth management clients, and I'm making it available to you for the affordable price of $29 a year. You can sign up at the Money Guy website. That's money-guy.com. This quarter's Wealth Report covers putting the summer stock sell-off in perspective, ranks of millionaires skyrocketing across the globe, the most common mistakes that retirees make, and how you can avoid them, what else should be in your will, and choosing an estate planning attorney. All this great information is packed into the fourth quarter Wealth Report. So what do you have to lose? You probably spend more than $29 on lunch this week. So take me up on this incredible offer and sign up today at the Money Guy website. Once again, that's money 
money-guy.com. Money-guy.com. Sign up now. And we're back. I'm your host, Brian Preston. By day, I am a fee-only wealth manager. I'm also a certified financial planner, a certified public accountant, and a personal financial specialist, which just means I'm a CPA that does financial planning work. And what we're talking about today, we just before the, the break, we were talking about the eight um, great pieces of advice that a lot of um, uh, the top financial experts are giving out there. So you can go back. If you didn't catch all that, you can always go out to our, the website for the show. That's money-guy.com and go out and listen to previous episodes and catch yourself back up. But coming back from the break, what we want to talk about now is are credit cards evil or just dangerous? And that for those just joining us during the commercial, I will go ahead and apologize up front. I'm under cold medication because I have a head cold and I am just not myself when it comes to reading this stuff Going over it, you know, when you're on this cold medication, it makes you feel like you're in a box. You're one person removed. You're kind of out there a little bit. So um, bear with me if I, I if I mix up some words, if I if I fumble a little bit, I will put this thing on track, and I'm going to make this happen and still make it one of the best financial shows that you're listening to out there on the radio at Business Radio 1160 or on the internet internet on iTunes. But getting back, our credit cards evil or just dangerous? This is an article that I found out there on MSN Money. Um, by by Liz Pulliam Weston. And, and if you haven't gone out there and looked at w- what Liz talks about, she's actually very, very sharp. I like looking at, at her articles out there on MSM. I think she has a lot of input. And it talks about how um, most arguments against credit cards note correctly that they're, they're too easy to get in the hands of people who really don't need them. And that's true for a variety of reasons. And we're about to go over that. And I know that Defending credit card companies is just wrong because there are, there are a lot of things they do in their practice that I do not agree with. If you notice, I mean, there's all kind of um, documentaries and things you can go out there and look at on Netflix or even just out there on YouTube about credit cards. And it's one of those things where they, um, you know, I, I don't like the practices where if you get a month or two behind, they go to, to loan shark rates where they jack your rates up into the mid-20s. I don't like how it's not uncommon that they will have the due date on a, on a fall upon um, a holiday. I've had that happen to me myself. I mean, the, these things, I don't think they're coincidences when this type of stuff happens. You've also got the ever-shrinking grace period on um, how long you, you have to pay off. You know, it used to be you could pay a month later, and um, as long as you paid your balance in full, you wouldn't accrue any interest. Well, that's been a shrinking period um, as credit card companies are figuring out ways that they can squeeze additional profits. So let's talk about what some of those troubling practices of what credit card companies do is, but then I want to come back and give you some very refreshing statistics that let you know, hey, this is not all bad. We're not all being irresponsible with the credit cards, and this is what's going to let the Money Guy Show go beyond common sense and let you hear what you're probably not hearing anywhere else, that credit cards, sure, they have their problems, they're dangerous, but they are not the devil like some people make them out to be. Um, the first problem that I do have with credit cards, and, and it's listed in this article, is that the screening is too lax. Pretty much if you're breathing and um, can wake up in the morning, you qualify for credit cards. And it really is that simple. I mean, it's not uncommon. I know when you're in college, um, you, you see stands set up all over college campuses where if you, you sign up for a credit card, they'll give you a bag of potato chips. They'll give you a T-shirt. I mean, it's the goofiest things I've ever seen. I remember when I was in college, kids were running up. You know, and, and signing up for these credit cards just for a bag of Lay's potato chips. I thought that was just goofy. I mean, it was a bag of potato chips cost. 
you know, a dollar fifteen, a dollar twenty nine, and you're out there signing up for a credit card for that. That's just, but you know, it's not the craziest thing you've ever heard. So screening is very lax, and that is an issue. Also, the minimum payments are low. If um, you know, it's not uncommon that you'll see that you only owe a tiny fraction of what you've actually charged. And it's actually, until recently, finally regulators stepped up and have required credit card companies to start requiring you to pay a little bit more on those minimum payments every month. They didn't even cover the interest charges necessarily on some of these cards. So you can, you can imagine if you're just paying the minimum, some of these cards were just accruing interest upon interest, and before you knew it, you were getting in trouble. So you've got you to watch how much you're paying and try to pay as much as you can when you do use credit cards. Um, the debt creeps up incrementally. And I think this is a great thing to talk about because it is true. You know, you, you go out there and get a mortgage on your house. You see all those zeros on the paper, and you know that you owe that money. I mean, that's what, I mean this is your, your shelter. This is your house. You go out and borrow one hundred fifty dollars to $300,000 $300, on your house. You know you owe that money, and it's easy to get in, a, in big debt from doing that. But credit cards are different because you can run yourself into bankruptcy just by charging $10, $20 at a time. And that's the thing you've got to be careful is that debt will creep up on you if you're not paying attention to it. And then there is research out there that says we spend more with plastic. It says that we've all seen the studies showing that people on average spend more free, freely when using credit cards than when using cash. But then she goes on to say, Liz does, then again, not all of us overspend. And some of my many readers say they actually spend more using cash. I'll go and tell you, I'm one of those people. I never keep cash in my pocket because I'm that type of person. If I have cash in my pocket, I'll stop and get a Chick-fil-A milkshake. I'll stop and um, you know, pick up a, a, a bottle of water at the gas station when I go to refill the, the car with gas. I mean, it's those type of things. So that's why if I ever got mugged, they're going to be sorely disappointed when they pull $3 out of my pocket because I just never have cash. It's the green, not the plastic, that burns holes in the pockets of some and disappears without a trace in various merchants' tills and, and vending machines. So I think, you know, you have to look at credit cards and know that they can be dangerous but definitely can be a tool. You know, at the last show, I talked about one of the best rebate cards um, according to Kiplinger's, and that was that American Express Blue Cash card. Because if um, after you spend, I think it was $6,500, you earned 5% on grocery store, gas, as well as drugstore purchases, and then you earned 1.5% on everything else. And that's that's pretty tremendous. So you can actually use that. I mean, if you're using credit cards responsibly, you can actually turn them into a money-making opportunity for you and your family. And I've told you guys in the past, I probably can count on about $1,200 a year from cash rebates because I have corporate credit cards that I use when I go out to eat that get me 3 to 5% back on eating out. And then I have my personal credit card, the Cash Rewards Plus from Chase, which is no longer available, unfortunately, um, that gets 5% back on grocery, gas, and drugstore purchases, and then 1% on everything else. And that stuff adds up. If you can get that 5% refund, it really helps out. So these are the things that I wanted to share with you. Now that I've given you the bad side of credit cards and why you've got to be careful because they are dangerous, let's talk about the actual facts of how we are actually handling credit card debt. And it says in this, you know, in, the, in this research that Liz is presenting, and this data is from, um, let me see, she's got it. Where does it say? It states, bear with me, bear with me. It says, um, oh, here it is, here it is. It's... Um, the Federal Reserve 
comes out with a survey every four to five years on um, consumer finances. So that's where these actual statistics come from uh, about debt because you also hear the average statistic that the average American has $9,000 or so in credit card debt. And that's not really reality because listen to these statistics that I'm about to give you from um, that came from the Federal Reserve's research. Only 43% of households carry any credit card debt according to the Federal Reserve statistics, and half of those owe less than $2,200. So putting this in terms, there is 57% of people out there who are either not using the credit cards every month or paying off the balance monthly. And that's what I want you to fall into. I want you to pay off those credit cards monthly. So I want you to be in that successful 57% that's um, using credit cards responsibly. And it says, you know, of those 43% that are actually carrying balances, half of those owe less than $2,200 a month. So if you think about that in terms, we've got 43%, half of them are are less than $2,200. So that means there's really only about a 20% group that is abusing these credit cards. And and here's some some additional data to help you um, understand. It says only one household in 14 carry more than $10,000 in credit card debt. That means there's 7% that's carrying a balance greater than $10,000. Only one household in 50 is carrying more than $20,000 in credit card debt. That's only 2% of you guys out there are using credit cards to the point that you owe more than $20,000. So as you can see, I don't think that the credit cards are as dangerous as what has been reported to us and as some people are putting as long as the majority of us are being responsible with us with it and it sounds like you know if you if you add the the 57% that are paying it off monthly and then the other 20% the the 22% that are paying that have balances less than $2200 you can see there's over 3 quarters of us that are using credit cards responsibly so i say if you can do that and understand the dangers of credit cards. Don't fall into those traps set up by the credit card companies to squeeze additional profit out of you. You can actually turn it into a resource and a tool to better your financial life. So so take advantage of these things. Now, last segment before we go to break. I hope I have time to fit this in. Um, where do you stand in the wealth spectrum? And this came from Bankrate. Um, Lee Eisenberg um, put this information together on Bankrate.com. And I'll be putting this out there on the website, money-guy.com. And it says, every three years, the Federal Reserve Board conducts a national survey that tracks the financial health of American households. And this is the information they came up with. If you and your household are bringing in $40,000 a year, you're doing better than half the households in America. So I'm already predicting that most people listening to this show, because if you're the type that listens to a financial talk radio show, you probably are taking a big interest in your finances. So I think that probably the majority, if not all of you, are probably already breaking that $40,000 spectrum. So welcome to the upper 50% of America. Um, It says below you'll find the average income picture sliced into income levels. Think of this chart as a parking ramp. If your household income is $170,000 or more, you're among the nation's top 10% of wage earners and get to park on the top floor. Anything in the six figures means you're in the top 20% and get to park on the floor right below. So looking at this, I know you don't have this information right in front of you unless you're on the money-guy.com and you've pulled up the link, but 
the top level, meaning the top 10% of the country, is the people who make $170,000 or more. Um, the next uh, break, break of people, meaning people in the top 20%, have to make over $99,000. So if you make six figures, you're in the top 20% of the United States on based upon income. Um, the bottom 20% is $10,000 or less. So that, that's the bottom 20%. The, um, the, 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 t- the next 40%, anybody, you know, the 40% rank is anybody who makes under $24,000. And then, as I said already, the, the third level is, um, the people you know who rank in the, the right in the middle, the forty to to sixty percent, is people who make less than forty thousand dollars a year. So it's not hard to to really be considered that you're making a quite a bit of money. That's why when you hear politicians talk about we're going to add additional taxes to the rich, it doesn't take much to be part of that rich number. Because I think most people who um you know will go, yeah, that sounds great. Let's add more tax to the rich, and then you find out, wait a minute, what what what's their definition of rich? It's not uncommon that that number is low as sixty thousand dollars. You start to see things, um, especially for tax purposes, phase out at a hundred thousand dollars. And then if you make over one hundred fifty thousand dollars, just forget it. You don't even really get credit for your kids anymore. People talk about how what what great tax deduction kids are. That's not the case if you make over, you know, over six figures really, because you start you lose that child tax credit over six figures. You um, also start to lose the exemption for, for you and your children and your family. So um, it, it is something. Be careful what you wish for when you, when you hear policy and politicians talk about, let's tax the rich, because you might very well be that person they're talking about not even realizing it. Um, because, you know, most of us, when we think of the rich, we're thinking of people who make a million dollars a year, two million dollars a year, 30 million dollars a year. You know, these are the people that um, I think most of but know to the government's eyes, it's people who really make over fifty, sixty to a hundred thousand um, dollars. So, and, that, and that's what the article gets into. It says, "So, does making one hundred seventy thousand dollars a year make you a rich person?" Last year, a plurality of respondents, twenty nine percent, in a survey by the New York Times, said that rich was making between a hundred and two hundred thousand dollars a year. Unfortunately, the survey didn't break out how many people in the salary range considered themselves rich. The people I talk to are any indication, very few do, and I think that's probably true. Most people making $100,000 to $200,000 a year probably don't consider themselves rich um, because you've still you got a business to run or you've got a big mortgage out there to pay. I mean, and plus you got kids in school. There's always expenses, toys begot toys. Um, it's one of those things. When we come back from the commercial break, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to finish off this article, and we're going to talk about where you rank in, in the issue of net worth. Uh, this is one of the first reports I've seen where it actually has the list of net worth. So come back with me in a few minutes. I'm your host for the Money Guy Show. This is Brian Preston. We'll be right back. Brian Preston, one half of Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. I'm now a fee-only planner. I didn't like the whole conflict of interest that was out there with commissions. If you found out how profitable life insurance was to sell, everybody started looking like they needed life insurance. So I just took that out of the equation and got into focusing on what I was good at, which was the consulting side of giving advice, helping people learn how to make money, and that way the client doesn't feel like they're worried about me selling them products. It allows me to really build trust because I have what's also called a fiduciary responsibility and obligation to put the client's best interest even ahead of my own. What I think is the most important part of my job educating the client. The great thing about if you're a good fee-only financial planner, you don't have to sell anybody anything. If you can educate the client, it goes much further than ever trying to sell them products. 
Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management, fee-only financial and investment advisors. Visit Preston-Cleveland.com. That's Preston-Cleveland.com. Okay, we're back for the last segment of the Money Guy Show. And I appreciate y'all putting up with the fact that um, I've got a little bit of a head cold this week under medication. Still doing one of the best financial shows out there trying to keep you apprised of how to restore order to your financial chaos and make it through the daily grind uh, of making the right financial decisions. Um, Before we went to break on that commercial break, we were talking about where you rank in the wealth spectrum based upon income. And I always say income is really not an indicator of where you really are in, in, in relation to, relationship to the wealth spectrum because income can come and go. I mean, let's face it, I see it all the time. I see people who might make three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year and really don't have much in savings because they're, they're living a lifestyle where they're not accumulating assets. And then by the same token, I've met teachers that um, you know work off two teacher salaries and end up having a, a portfolio that's worth a million dollars. And, you know, if you're doing a comparison, if you probably sat two people next to each other, you know, this person make three hundred, three to $400,000 but not saving anything, and then you compare the two teachers, you might look at them and go, gosh, this is the wealthy guy, this person making three to $400,000. But then you go look at the net worth statement, and you go, man, these teachers are the ones that have actually built up the net worth because anybody... Um, you know, income is, is a great tool to help you build wealth, but if you're not saving anything, you're not a wealthy individual. You're just a high-income earner. Whereas if you're that, that disciplined investor who's putting away that money that you're supposed to for that rainy day and to build financial independence, you're the one that's got the wealth that can allow your money to work for you. It's essentially like having a whole group of workers sitting in the backyard um, when you have a big bank account and a big investment account because you, now you don't have to work with your hands. You can go send some of those workers out that you've got stored away, your money, and, and do that work that you don't have to use your hands, your, 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 your back, or do any labor because um, you've got your money doing the work for you. You can relax and kind of let that money grow. So what I wanted to come back to was this article put together by Bankrate had not only how you fall into the spectrum of, of income, it also had wealth. And I think this is very important because it lets you look at where you fall. And as I talked about in the previous um, segment, top 10% in income was $170,000. So what's the top 10% of wealth? Um, the top 10% of wealth is people who have a net worth counting of $833,600. Now, net worth, just as a review, is every um, is everyone should know, hopefully if you've been listening to the show for a while, is the sum of your assets. That's your home equity, your investments, your savings accounts, your retirement funds, your cars, your furnace, furnishings, and such things as jewel, jewelry, furs, wine collection, and old baseball, baseball cards, minus all outstanding liabilities such as mortgage balances, revolving in credit card debt, college loans, auto loans, and so on. Um, the article does say the average household, the national median net worth, if you just want to know where right in the middle is, the 50% mark is, it's $86,000, which I was kind of surprised because this is not one of those surveys where it's just based upon your investment net worth, you know, excluding your home. This is taking into account the equity that you might have in your personal residence. The average is $86,000, which I thought was rather low. So the top 10% has, you know, essentially $834,000, getting close to a million dollars. The 
bottom the bottom 20% has a net worth of less than $7,900. So that's unfortunate. There is a group of people out there, 20% of us, that um, have less than eight grand in, in net worth, and that's including furniture, you know, everything. That's kind of unfortunate. The top 20% is people who have a net worth greater than $263,000. So if you have a net worth, um, say your 401k, your, um, your house, and some other things, if you total up the value of those assets and they're worth $263,000, you are in the top 20%. The top um, 60%, yeah, um, that means the top 40, I should say, if you're looking at this from a mathematical. The top 40% have a net worth greater than 141000 And then right in the middle, as I've already told you, is about $86,000. So you can see, it's. Um, I think that's a sign of the times of, like I said, people, uh, you know, getting back to that first segment, talking about great advice. Dave Ramsey had mentioned the tortoise and the hare book is what you ought to really base your financial life on is you all need to be saving and paying yourself first and, and doing the slow and steady race because you can see that most people aren't doing that, unfortunately. You know, if the median net worth is $86,000, it doesn't take long if you're saving 10, 15, 20% of your annual income that you'll be way above the annual um, net worth in, quite, in a quite short period of time. So let's talk about, as I mentioned, we have quite a few listeners out there in the California area and they had some disasters and then uh, you know it's not uncommon especially during this hurricane season haven't fortunately haven't had any trouble but in the past you know you've had hurricanes Katrina and some other things that have come through and really impacted the country and I think it's you need to talk about dealing with disaster in your insurance company and there's an article I found on this by Jenny Jenny L. Phipps um, at bankrate.com, and it says, The disaster is past, leaving behind a mess so complete it's hard to know where to begin putting things right. Um, it says, Resist the temptation to run away and worry about it later. Your mission, and you better accept it because you're, this is your assets here. This is your home. This is your car. This is whatever you know is damaged, is to call your insurers and get that claim ball rolling. The sooner you report damage, the sooner you get to cash the check. So they go through some steps here and what you got to do whenever you have a disaster or something impacting you need to make a claim. It says number one, step one, is call right away. Calling the insurance company will put the claim on record and also may get you some emergency help, such as a crew to help pump out a swamped basement following a hurricane or flood. Um, it says you can contact your agent by phone or email. Those are probably the easiest, but listen to this. Getting proof of delivery will let you off the hook. For some reason, your report goes unrecorded, and if there's some question concerning timing of the claim. So if you can get some type of delivery receipt or proof of delivery, I think you, you protect yourself an additional layer. And that's always important when you're talking about huge financial assets like your personal house, um, your residence, maybe some investment property, or even, you know, if you have a car claim, something with your automobile. Number two, hunt down your insurance policies. Ideally, you would have collected these policies in a safe place beforehand. Now is time to get them out. This includes not just your homeowner's wind and flood policies, but also auto and even health insurance. You need to, to have them all so you can check the policies and see where coverage overlaps. Read the fine print 
of each carefully, especially the part in your homeowner's policy titled duties after a loss. Because just because you have a claim doesn't mean you are, are, are released of all responsibilities. You've got to protect that, that property. You know, you might have some requirements that you go prevent additional damage by putting a tarp over the hole in the roof. You know, you've got to, you need to go read your policy and find out what you are responsible. Um, it says, even if you have a good protective company, you have obligations, says James Walsh, author of Get Your Claim Paid. So you want to make sure that you are doing everything you can um, to protect your property after um, the damage has occurred. Number three, check your property thoroughly as soon as possible. Inspect everything. Basements, attics, backyards, sheds, in particular, look carefully at the roof. Even if it looks solid, search for any evidence of leakage. Um, check your foundation for cracks or erosion. Even if you have flood water, even if you don't have flood water in your house, make sure the major systems like your furnace and air conditioner are working. Turn on all appliances because I, I will tell you, I have this with, you know, I have a, I have a new residence. Well, it's, it's four years old now, but I'm still sick because... Um, and I know this is a little off topic, but it's just how important it is that you need to go check everything out because you only get one shot at it. I had a home warranty, and I had a, a, a spigot down in the bottom of my basement that I just never turned on. It's in a place that I never thought I'd use. Found a need for that spigot, went and tried to turn it on. I found out that the plumbers, when they built the house, didn't even hook up that pipe. So I've got a spigot on the outside of the house that's not really run to any plumbing whatsoever. I need to have a plumber come out and attach it. And it's one of those things, it's the same thing here. You've got to go check everything because you get one shot to make sure your appliances work, your heating and air system works. You want to check it also. Be very thorough when, when you're checking out your property after damage occurs. Number four, make temporary repairs. And we kind of already hit on this, is that you want to go out and prevent additional damage to the property. If you need to go put tarps on holes in the roof, if you need to go put something over a window that's been busted out, do that. It says, but stop short of removing evidence of the damage. If the insurance adjuster can't see what happened, he's unlikely to take your word on what did happen. Um, so you need to be very careful and make sure that, that you do it. Now, I thought this was important because I've actually worked with some tree cutting services, and, and this is um, some information they probably would not like to hear, but I think it's important. It says, don't accept the services of companies that drive through damaged neighborhoods immediately after a disaster and offer to help. While these services may seem tempting, um, catastrophic um, events bring scam artists out of the woodwork. Plus the services that many of these opportunists um, are, are, are offering to provide, such as tree removal after tornadoes or hurricanes, are usually performed free of charge by the Federal Emergency Management Agency team. So FEMA will come in, it sounds like, in a lot of situations and remove a lot of this stuff. Now, if you're one of those people that has to get it out as soon as possible because it's driving you crazy, you've got a driveway or something, you know, sometimes you have to, to act, but some of this might be free um, to get it removed. Number five, be wary. Give your agent the phone numbers and addresses where you can be reached by day or night. When an adjuster contacts you, ask for identification. Thieves have been known to use, um, you know, the, the claim that they're an adjuster to get in your house and essentially rob you blind. Number six, be prepared. When adjusters show up, have evidence of your loss, including itemized lists, appraisals, videos, still photos, receipts, whatever you can muster up to prove that you owned and what it's worth. Number seven, don't settle for less. It can be a blessing if your ins insurance company sets up an emergency claims office in the area and offers to settle partial claims on the spot. 
This is a practice of many large insurance companies experiencing disaster management. But don't jump in immediate relief. Occasionally, a less scrupulous insurance company will try to slip in language on a small settlement that states the payment is for full satisfaction of the company's liability. That's a big no-no. So pay attention to whatever you're reading, signing, uh, or being offered by the insurance companies, and be careful of anything you sign. Under those circumstances, most major companies won't require that you sign anything other than endorsing the check. Even before you endorse that check, make sure that there, there isn't language on the back of the check that prevents you from making any additional claims. So this is great information. Number eight, don't take the insurance company's first offer. You don't have to accept the first settlement your insurance company offers. If you don't think a settlement is enough, go back and look over the policy. Read the coverage limits for various types of structures and personal possessions and check how the insurance company is applying each type. Talk to the claims adjuster. If he doesn't provide satisfaction, go higher up on him in the food chain of, you know, that company. If you're right, if you're sure you're right, don't take no for an answer. If all else fails, file a report with the state insurance department. Believe me, in a disaster situation, no insurance company wants the state insurance department breathing down their neck. And I think that's a fact. You you have options if you get in a situation where the insurance company is trying to lowball you on what they should be paying you. Um, number nine, consider alternatives. It's possible that your policy limits you to rebuilding exactly the same house in the exact same place, but many policies don't. Consider whether you want to use this as an opportunity to move to a condominium or pick up stakes and sell around the world or maybe move to a different location. You have to go check your policy and see what it offers you. Number 10, get help. Filing an insurance claim generally is a do-it-yourself task. In most cases, that's not a problem as long as you're dealing with a reputable insurance company and you're reasonably assertive and willing to stay on top of the claim. But if you're unable to be near the property or claim is complicated or you're not well, you might consider hiring a, li a licensed public adjuster. For about 10% of the claim, they'll read over the policy, submit the paperwork, and follow up on any problems. It seems kind of expensive, 10%. I probably would do the do-it-yourself approach. Um, you know, vet the repair services your insurance company may offer to waive the deductible if you're willing to work with a contractor it recommends. While this can be a good thing, you know, the, the article warns that it can also be a lock you into hiring a company that doesn't meet your standards. So they might bring in somebody who's cheap, but not necessarily good. Um, if you've ever watched that Bernie Mac show, I thought they had a great um, episode one time where I saw they had a chart where it says, you can have two or three things on this list, and it was good, cheap, and fast. You only get two. If you want it good and cheap, it's not going to be fast. If you want it good and fast, it's not going to be cheap. I think that, that's one of those things where it, it's true about most things. So you need to be very careful when somebody's offering you something. And then it says just be vigilant. So, you know, so make sure you're making the right decisions. Put your insurance company on the spot. Make the right decisions. Hopefully some of this information has been helpful. Go out to our website, money-guy.com. Check out the Wealth Report. Check out our email newsletter. Until next week, this is your host, Brian Preston. I'll see you soon. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston & Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.